something that just changed his entire life. And here's what he wrote about what he, what he discovered. He said, I greatly longed to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans, and nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the righteousness of God. Because I took it to mean that righteousness whereby God is righteous and deals righteously in punishing the unrighteous. Night and day I pondered it until, until I grasped the truth that the righteousness of God is that righteousness whereby through grace and sheer mercy he justifies us. He justifies the unrighteous by faith. Thereupon, I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole scripture took on a new meaning. And and whereas before the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. This passage of Paul that he's reading became to me a gateway to heaven. Now, the monk, of course, if you haven't already guessed, was Martin Luther. Martin Luther. And so here's this this fellow. He's a professor of theology teaching at a university, teaching the scriptures. And he's telling us, as he writes this, how he awoke one day to realize he didn't actually know the Lord. He didn't know the Lord Jesus that he was teaching about. He hadn't been born from again, born again, born from above. It's an example of a principle (laughs) that you can know a lot about something or someone without actually knowing them. How many, you know, you can read one paragraph in Wikipedia and you, you can put yourself across as an expert about something, but that doesn't mean you know it. Just means you know how to look something up on the internet. Um, well, what was it about this this New Testament book that was written by Paul that it became this gateway to heaven for Luther? What was it? Only that it's it's one of the clearest and most concise presentations of God's plan in the whole Bible. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, amen. Because even Paul, and Paul, we think of Paul as this, this theologian who clearly lays things out very concisely, and he's a left brain guy. I just know he is because he always writes that way. But even Paul got excited about his own letter. He got so excited. This is what he wrote at the end of chapter 11. This is what he wrote. Oh, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. And it's not up on the screen, but then he went on. He said, who has known the mind of the Lord? Or or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Amen. That's the end of Romans chapter 11, and we're just getting started. Uh, we're starting a sermon series today. New series today. Woohoo! Yes. And, and I couldn't think of a more fitting title than to be exploring 
the depths of the riches of God. Because every page in this book, if you keep looking at it, is a wow. And that's what we're going to do as we, because we're really going to dive into this book in the next while. I really hope you're going to enjoy this journey. I really do. Because to me, the, you may be wondering why there's a diamond on this page. That to me is a picture of the gospel. It's like a multifaceted diamond. If you hold a diamond, if you had a diamond that size, you'd be the richest person in the world. But if you could hold a diamond up and you could see it, all those little facets and how they all shine light and reflect light back, as you go through the Bible, every understanding we get about God is just like only one of those facets on this amazing diamond we call the gospel. It's only one. But in Romans, and Romans has that feel, but of this rich wisdom in, in God's plan. But it doesn't just cover only one aspect of God's glory. He tackles many of them. So fasten your mental seat belts because we're going to go through the book of Romans and it's going to be a really great trip. <sighs> That's what I want to do when I read that phrase. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom of God. Wow. Wow. Paul's voice just jumps off that page to me uh, because joy is one of the products that we get when we have this living and growing and vital and vibrant relationship with Jesus. We want to know this King of glory. We want to worship him. We, we, we want to have that sense of, the sense that Paul was trying to put across there of his amazement over the Lord kind of sense that all those people at all those booths at Missions Fest had about telling other people about Jesus because they got this. They caught it. Now if that's your heart's desire, then let Paul's words to the Roman church sink into you with power. And that's what Luther discovered. And even though he discovered that even if you know the words of Scripture well enough to teach them, the word only becomes truly life-changing when you really grasp its truth and you get it right here. Not here, but here. In the core of your being. Let's turn to the beginning of the book, Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Now, Paul introduces himself first, and that's a typical vehicle at the beginning of a letter. He introduces himself because... He's actually, when he wrote this letter, he had never actually been to the church at Rome. You, you might not have realized that. You think there's so much detail that he tells them about them. But he had never been there. And some of the people there were wondering why he hadn't visited Rome. Because they knew who he was by this point, and they knew that he had traveled a lot. And so the first part of the, 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 the verses, right from verse 1 on, we're going to read those together. And then we'll, we'll carry on with this. Okay, Paul, servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. The Old Testament jumps off the page all the way through the book of Romans. Paul's telling them why it's important. Regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David and through whom who through and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of god in power 
by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him we receive grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. (sighs) That just pours over me like a blessing because that's what it was. And then he gets into the body. First, verse 8, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his son is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now at last, by God's will, the way may be opened for me to come to you. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you just as I've had among the other Gentiles. I'm obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I'm so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jews, then to the Gentiles. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Amen. We can close in prayer, right? (laughs) No, we're just getting started. (laughs) Well, so he introduces himself, and he's obviously heard that some people are a little annoyed that he hasn't come yet. So he explains why. wasn't for lack of desire, Um, But the plans hadn't happened. He got sidetracked. And this was typical of Paul. And if you actually look, you could jot down Acts chapter 16, 6 to 10. Just put that reference somewhere on your page. And you can look it up later to see how God, through the Holy Spirit, kept changing Paul's plans. Paul would plan to go somewhere, and he'd say, but the Holy Spirit prevented me. And then, so I decided to go over here, but the Spirit of God said, not there. And then he went over, and finally he would figure out what God wanted him to do, and he'd go there. But he was always getting his plans changed. But now, Paul says, now, Lord willing, I'm coming to Rome because I'm obligated to you, to, to Greeks and non-Greeks. That, some translations use the word barbarians here for non-Greeks. Uh, that means something different today than it used to. Uh, it's from a Greek word, actually, barbaroi. And it actually was a word that they used. Actually, it was a shot. It was, it, was a, it was a way of slagging people who... Greek culture, to them, was the epitome of culture. And if you spoke Greek, that was what you should do. And if you didn't speak it well, or you sounded like a hick, you were a barber. 
So it was a shot. But Paul doesn't use that actual word. The word here, he says, Greeks and non-Greeks. What he's saying is, I'm obligated to everybody who isn't Jewish. His ministry was to bring the, the gospel to the whole Jewish world. No, sorry, the whole non-Jewish world. And so he, he's doing what Jesus wanted him to do. But why is he doing it? I mean, what motivated this man to preach the gospel? What motivated him to do this? Well, he tells us here, he says, he preaches it because he knows that it's God's power. He said he knows it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Two things motivate him. Two things in particular, two. One is simply this gratitude for his changed life. He, he is just blown away by what God has done to him in the years since he was stopped cold on the Damascus Road. He was living proof that the gospel transforms. The old Paul, when he was Saul of Tarsus, thought he was serving God by hunting down and exterminating the followers of Jesus. But he was stopped in his tracks, literally, by the risen Lord Jesus on that road. And transformed, transformed. And so Paul knew at that deep spirit, soul level, what it meant to be forgiven personally. And now he had that peace with God. And so knowing what Jesus had done for him and in him, Paul, Paul wanted to serve him. He just wanted to serve him. Gratitude. That was the first. Second was, he, and he tells it here, he wanted to see glory come to God. He wanted God to be glorified through what he did. That, that others would see the greatness of God that he was serving through the, and, and, and see what God had done and become followers as well. And so for Paul, it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And he wants them to know that salvation is through him alone. But he wants Jesus to get all the glory, not Paul. And that's what he actually says in verse 5. Actually, if you just go back to verse 5, he said, Through him, Jesus, we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. That's why he's talking to them. That's the reason he told others, not for himself, but for Jesus' sake. So now, telling, telling people who don't know Jesus is only, it's only one facet of the diamond, though. And Paul wasn't writing to people. Actually, Paul wasn't writing to those people when he wrote this letter. He was writing to people who had already come into that faith relationship, some from a Jewish background and some not. The believers at Rome, those loved by God and called to be his holy people. It's verse 7. But that diamond, one of the other facets of it, is he is also called to make disciples of all people. You know, when, when Jesus, uh, on, in the Great Commission, uh, the mountaintop, Matthew 28, gathered everybody together before he ascended to heaven. He didn't tell people, 
he didn't say to, to the disciples, tell them about me, have people turn from sin and get right with me, and then go somewhere else and tell more people and keep doing it. No, he said, go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded. Ah, that's different. Because the gospel done correctly produces a reproducing church. The gospel, when you are so excited, you can't sit still about Jesus. You got to get up and tell somebody. You just do. And when that becomes in second nature, when that second nature becomes almost first nature to us, that's what we do. And so Paul made sure, and he wanted to make sure, whenever he went anywhere, he made sure that these people that came to know Jesus were growing and they were becoming mature in their faith and their understanding and that he was starting to see that being replicated and reproduced in them. Then he'd go to the next group and start another group. So he was passionate about that. He was passionate about making disciples and not just converts. But that begs the question, is our command the same? Yep. Now, Paul is not, we don't have to be like Paul and go out on evangelistic journeys to foreign places. Not all of us, some people are called specific to that. But our few of us are called to go and start new churches all over the world. But the gospel is for all of Jesus' followers to share. So what's our motivation then? Why should we do it? Why? Why should we get involved? I mean, isn't, isn't evangelism for uh, <clears throat> evangelists? A good question. We have two things that can motivate us too. Uh, not, these aren't the only, but these are two main ones. The first one's actually kind of negative. We are motivated by the fear of the Lord. Uh, that's a word that's been translated differently in some of the newer, newer translations, but I think the word fear of the Lord actually means fear of the Lord. Uh, Paul, in his letter to the church, one of his letters to the Corinthian church, he said this, he said, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due, for, due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. If you know you are going to be before the judgment seat of Christ, yeah, a little nervous. I mean, I know I've got the right to be there, and that's not in question, but I might be nervous to be before the judge. Since then, he says, what we, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade men and women. We try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and I, and I hope it's also plain to your conscience. Everyone, everyone will appear before the risen Lord for judgment. It could be a scary thought, but not if you are ready. I mean, what, if, what would you do if you were judged and found guilty? I guess that would mean you actually were guilty. But what if we're judged? Everyone in the world falls short of God's standard for righteousness. 
Um, on our own, we don't have a leg to stand on before a holy God. We're without excuse. Paul is going to get that in chapter 5 of this letter. But as we read ahead into the next few chapters, we see that you cannot escape the fact that God's righteousness demands that justice be done. He can't turn a blind eye to sin. Uh, August 2011, nine years ago, uh, a Category 3 hurricane, not the biggest, barreled up the east coast of the United States, up the eastern seaboard, clobbered the whole east coast. Um, the mayor of New York City was a man named Michael Bloomberg at the time. He called a press conference before it came to warn New Yorkers about what was coming and to get ready. Because when the hurricane is beating down on you, it's too late to try to board up the windows. And there was an urgency, he said, to prepare for what they knew was coming. And that Hurricane Irene, it was called, caused about $15 billion of damage. And in terms of hurricane damage, there's been worse. That was actually not even in the top 10. That was number 11 all time. That's scary. But there's an even bigger storm waiting if you're not prepared for eternity. Knowing that people without Jesus are going into an eternity without hope gives me that urgency to tell others. At the end of time, and, and we don't know when that will happen, God will remove his people from the earth. And at that moment, all hell's going to break loose. And you thought it already had. No, he's holding that back through his presence. Warning people that there's a final judgment coming is, is an aspect of why we want others to know Jesus. We want them to know there's danger ahead. But God's justice is only half the story. And we want them to know the other half. The fear of the Lord motivates Paul and it motivates us. But the other half is Christ's love. The love of the Lord for us and in us is the positive side of the equation. Uh, again, from Corinthians. Paul writing, for Christ's love compels us because we're convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again. That's the rest of the story. Jesus giving his life on the cross as we've celebrated today. Satisfying God's justice. Jesus paid the debt for my sin. Jesus, in his great love and mercy, laid down his life for us. The love of Christ compelled Paul to tell people, compels me to do the same. How can, how can I hold that back? How can I keep from singing his praise? How could I ever say enough? How amazing is this love? That's a Chris Tomlin song lyric, I know, but 
but that's why I love the song so much. It's good. It's true. Because apart from Jesus, we're lost for eternity, separated from God and facing eternal punishment. With Jesus, we are rescued and safe for all eternity. Hell is real, but it doesn't have to be part of the human experience unless one dies apart from Jesus. After death, it's, it's too late to do anything about it. So God gives us this opportunity to come to him now. And procrastination is not a good plan. Putting it off is not a good plan. Um, it's one of the biggest tools in the, uh, in the devil's arsenal, actually, is I, I, I'm interested, but I'm, I'm going to wait. I'll, I'll do it later. The problem with that is that you could step into eternity five minutes from now. Later is not going to help you. Because once that happens, it is too late. Knowing the fear of the Lord, he writes, we persuade others. Knowing in our heart the great love of Jesus, we want others to know him too. It, it's not either or, it, it's both. And so, so we each have a mandate to bring that good news. And when you really grasp who you are and where you're headed without Jesus, the gospel is good, good news. That's why Paul could say in verses 16 and 17, For I am not ashamed. I am, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation, that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that's by faith from first to last, just as it's written. The righteous will live by faith. Actually, it could be translated a little better to say, the righteous, by faith, shall live. That's an important distinction, actually. Because we are, made to, we are made righteous. We are declared right by God, not by ourselves, not by our own effort. By believing in faith that Jesus paid our penalty. That was the aha moment for Martin Luther. That and a few verses later in, in chapter 2, when he really put it all completely together. But this, this was the aha moment for him. And that's what he told the Ephesian church in the letter to, the, to Ephesus. He said, for it's by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourself. It's the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Now, Paul was writing to people who were familiar with the Old Testament scriptures, many of them, because he was writing to a church and there would have been a lot of Jewish people in it. Word of explanation is needed there about some of these concepts of what it meant to be righteous because the Hebrew understanding of righteousness is very different to what we would call it. It's a different understanding of ours, our modern understanding. Right and wrong in Jewish culture were forensic or, or judicial terms. It was right or wrong, as, as though there, were, there was something being settled before a judge. You're right or you're wrong. To be righteous to them, and this is written in on your page, 
the, the Hebrew word is sadiq. That meant to be in the right. To, the opposite meant to be in the wrong. Uh, an example from this would be Exodus chapter 9, Exodus 9.27. Uh, God had sent a plague of hail on the land of Egypt. We're, we're going through, many of you are going through a chronological reading of the Bible right now. Have you been through the, the plagues yet and the people Israel being rescued? By the way, that's a great thing. And I challenge you like one of my other pastors did. This is a rabbit trail, but it's a commercial too. I challenge you to read through the Bible in this year. Just once or more. You'll be amazed. In Exodus 9, when this happens, this plague of hail, Pharaoh summons Moses and Aaron to him and he says, <laughs> this is cheeky actually, he says, this time I've sinned. <laughs> Now, he'd been sinning the other times too. But he said, this time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, Sadiq. And I and my people are in the wrong, Rasha. Yeah. So they got it. God is in the right. That's what righteous means. Jesus paid that penalty for us satisfying the death, the, the, the justice of God when he died on the cross. And so God the judge, and this is one of the key takeaways today, God the judge declares us to be in the right when we by faith trust Jesus. Now, he says at that point, when we by faith trust Jesus, we are in the right. Are we still sinners? Uh-huh. He didn't transform us into something holy and perfect right there. He declares us to be in the right. In, and that means in relationship to God by the faith in the one who paid the price. So, I think we may have already answered part of this, but why is the gospel such good news? Oh, now we don't have all day. <laughs> I wish. No, you don't because it's Super Bowl Sunday, right? <laughs> go 49ers? No, go Kansas City Chiefs? Okay. <laughs> all right. We don't have all day, but why is this such good news? Because we can be in the right with God through what Jesus did. We have that opportunity. And because, second, God's righteousness is actually seen and shown to us in the fact that he declares sinful humans right and saves us. That he's declaring sinful humans to be righteous and saving us. There isn't really an actual English verb that, that, that fits what, Jesus, what, what God did when he did this. Uh, one, one scholar said he tried to, well, he tried to, to give a, he said, okay, let me put it this way. God righteouses his people. He righteouses them. It doesn't roll off the tongue, does it? No, it's more like a tongue twister. But that's because we can't really describe it well in English and do as well as it's described with Siddiq in the right. So Paul's not ashamed of that. I mean, why would he be? Why would he be? The gospel is the best news that you and I are ever going to hear. Yeah, amen. 
the gospel as God's plan to bring salvation to the world. Two centuries after Luther, mid-1700s, on a late May evening, a man went to a meeting of a Bible society on, in London on a street called Aldersgate Street. And they were reading from Luther's preface to Romans. They weren't actually even reading Romans at that point. They were just reading about what Luther said, the words that we just had at the beginning. And so this man wrote in his journal, and he was one of those guys who actually journaled things. He said, about a quarter before nine, while he, Luther, was describing the change which God's, God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ. Christ alone for my salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken my sins away, even mine and saved me from the law of sin and death. Whew. The realization that it was all about faith from first to last, or as some of our Bibles would say, from faith to faith, absolutely transformed John Wesley. John Wesley, Wesleyan churches, Methodist churches circuit preacher who rode 60,000 miles in his lifetime to tell people about Jesus on horseback. You, you forget, saddle, I won't want to talk about saddle sores. The realization came to him. He said, in his own words, at that moment, he exchanged the faith of a servant for the faith of a son. Do you have the faith of a servant? Or do you have the faith of a son? Or a daughter? To know that God has declared us not guilty in the right because of Jesus' sacrifice. What a revelation. Wow. Wow. Sorry. But that's our invitation. Because Jesus invites us, you and me, to that. He invites people to be in the right with God. And if you haven't placed your trust in him alone, my only encouragement would be say, do it, please. Because this is God's invitation to, to you. Because we can't ever do it on our own, in our own effort. But God, through his Son, declares it so. So, do you have the faith of a servant or the faith of a son or a daughter? The righteous will live by faith, Paul wrote. And I would turn it around and say, the righteous by faith shall live. God sees that faith alive in us and declares us in the right with him. Through Jesus' work, not ours. Righteous by faith. Let's pray. Oh, Lord. <laughs> How can we not jump up and down and cheer 
when we remember and realize what you have done. How can we not be so excited that we couldn't hold it in? I pray that kind of aliveness to us, Lord, that we would tell other people what you have done through the Lord Jesus, what you have done on the cross, and that you would give us the eyes of faith to see and believe and understand that, that we too may enter those gates at one point and feel like, like Luther did, that a doorway to heaven had been opened. That is our future, Lord, and we can only be th thankful to you alone for it. For it is by grace we've been saved through faith, not by work, not by anything we do. And that by even making that choice to believe or to say yes to you, we say, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, yes, Lord. You saw that, and you immediately say, we are now in the right with you. Thank you. Let's carry that thought with us today, Lord, as we go from here to be the encouragement, the salt, the light, the comfort to those around us who need this message of hope more than we know. Some, Lord, that we may not even know are desperate for that message of hope, and you have put us right in their path and given us an opportunity, perhaps not even with words, but by the love that you have shown for us that we can show to them. And so all these things, Lord, we give and commit to you. We thank you for Paul. And we thank you for him preserving them here in this book. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.